WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to this edition of City Talk. I received my formal high school education at the State School for the Blind in Batavia, New York, over 50 years ago. My God, I can't believe it. And and at our most recent alumni had the great pleasure of meeting their new superintendent, Jacqueline Simpson. And uh, Jackie has graciously consented to join us and discuss her career as well as what's going on up in Batavia, New York. And Jackie, it's really great having you. I knew the minute I met you, I had to get you on the air. Well, thank you very much, Kenny. Um, I appreciate this opportunity to, to meet and speak with you. Now, I, I know you're in Batavia. Did you grow up in the, in New York, in the New York State area? Um, I actually was born in Stamford, Connecticut, and we moved to Western New York when I was 10. My mother is originally from this area, and uh, we moved back actually to her hometown in Avon, New York, a very rural area just outside of Rochester, New York, about uh, 30 minutes south. Yep, I'm familiar with, with that. I grew up in Rochester and have very fond memories of, of that whole area. Yeah. Now, I, I know you were involved with special education teaching for over 14 years. Was there something in your life before that, that that happened to you that made you go that route or was it just circumstance? That's a great question, Kenny. I think that... Um, I would think that when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, it seemed like it was circumstance. It seemed like I had in my mind a path to either head toward social work and uh, human services or uh, to head toward education. And then once I got into the education field, I started thinking about some of my life experiences. And my earliest experience was uh, babysitting. Uh, when I was 10 years old, for our neighbors who lived in Avon, who had a little boy who was a more uh, typically uh, functioning young man, very busy little boy, but a typically functioning young man, and his little sister who had um, some multiple disabilities um, that just really made me feel it was pretty special that my neighbors trusted their 10-year-old neighbor to take care of both their three and one year old children uh, with the youngest child being very multiply disabled. And I think it was later in life that I reflected on that and thought that was probably really my first experience working with an individual with such significant disabilities. And probably it did set for the foundation that I later you know, chose a life path to, to always be involved with those with special needs. And where did you start and, and where did you wind up going with it? Sure. So when I graduated from college uh, with a degree in psychology, which, you know, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with that, um, I ended up at a residential agency called Hillside Children's Center, uh, located in Rochester, New York. And I was a residential supervisor um, for five out of the 10 years that I was employed with Hillside. And after about 10 years, that's when I thought, well, I have to choose maybe a different path um, to, to continue professionally. And I was looking to get my master's. I wasn't quite sure in what. Uh, and that's when I decided to head down the road of education 
and um, finished my master's degree at Nazareth College in Rochester, uh, and then began my employment as a special education teacher in 1994. Um, with the Canandaigua City School District. And I taught special education at fourth and fifth grade uh, for nearly 14 years. Ah, Canandaigua, I gotta ask you, did you yeah. ever go get to go to Roseland Park? Oh yes, yeah, but I went to Roseland Park years ago when it wasn't the <laughs> water park that it is now, but it was actually the amusement park that it had been for decades and decades. Yep, I grew up there as a matter of fact. Yep, grew up there. In Rode the Skyliner. I think I wore it out. As a matter of yeah, fact, it was, it was a great, great roller coaster. It was a great amusement park. I don't remember like a Sea Breeze or a Darien Lake, which are popular parks now. But we definitely went to Roseland every summer. Yep, I grew up at Sea Breeze too. I was an yeah. amusement park nut. Oh, uh, good for you. <laughs> when when I was when I was little. So tell me about those those fourteen years. Did you stick to like one particular grade or did you go to the third grade or the fifth grade or what? Yeah, that's a great question. I um, originally started off in fifth grade in what was called the self-contained 15 to one classroom. So that was 15 students to one special education teacher. And these students were in um, more typical classroom settings, but were pulled or came to me uh, specifically for English, language, arts, and math. Um, I was at fifth grade for about three years and then um, moved to fourth grade for about seven years. And I worked as both a 15 to one teacher for some of the students that were in um, general ed classrooms and then worked also as a consultant teacher, which meant I pushed into the general ed classroom. So it was a nice array of experiences uh, for students with varying needs. Uh, I enjoyed the opportunity to push into classrooms because I felt that it really kept my skill set uh, up to par because I was working with different teachers, with varying students, even students that were gifted and accelerated. Um, so we were a very eclectic group uh, during that those fourth grade years. And, really enjoyed the different students we were able to support. And then I finished out my career uh, working with what would be called 1211 uh, classroom programming. Uh, and those students were students with some more significant communication and developmental needs. Uh, and I actually looped with that class. So I would work with the students from fourth grade and then take them up to fifth and then come back down and loop again from fourth to fifth. And that's sort of where I ended my teaching career and then went on to get some certification credits under my belt to become an administrator. What, if any, were there any unexpected challenges that you had to face in that time? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, Kenny. Um, I would think that probably the most, it probably wasn't the worst challenge, but a significant challenge, I think, uh, were during those years in which, um, you know, for some various reasons, some shifts were made in education under No Child Left Behind. And so under NCLB, which was to raise, you know, the level of accountability of teachers and then raise the level of accountability for our students, I don't think that that legislation led to the change that was expected 
uh, to impact learning. And in fact, it was kind of challenging, especially if you worked with students with disabilities, because at first they didn't really want to recognize that there were students with disabilities. And then it became very important that we try to raise children uh, to those certain expectations, those grade level expectations. And the reality was that some students very, very much you know, rose to those level levels and some students were very, very much challenged by grade level expectations. So I would think that for me, that was a challenge because I could see the gifts and the abilities and the personal growth that many students made, but you really couldn't balance that against grade level standards that were just really, you know, and for some, for some children, unfortunately, were just quite impossible to reach. Um, so we were able to provide what was called alternate assessment uh, opportunities. So that would be opportunities to test students, you know, in the range of their abilities. But it just, it went through so many different cycles of trying to keep track of what was, you know, do we want to bring kids up or do we not, you know? So that I think was challenging because I thought it was very distracting to what we really were there to do. And that was to make sure we were raising up in our classrooms, good citizens and, you know, students that were being, um, you know, taught and trained to be as independent as they could with their with their God given talents. Um, so I, I would think that was the biggest challenge that always that push and shove between, you know, what are the regulations and what's the reality of, of what you feel is important for students. And talk about, uh, I'm sure, with the development of technology, as the years went along in those 14 years, I'm sure it made it a lot easier for you to teach. Oh, it sure did. Yeah, I, I think back to some of the great um, technology advances that we made to encourage independence with certain reading uh, programs that were brought to the forefront. Um, there were some great things that we got to pilot to support students with disabilities. Um, and what was mostly, I think, the, the, the greatest advantage for those increasing technologies was the level of independence, you know, that we could expect for students um, and just the ingenuity for what we could do as teachers, you know, so some of the more basic or even some more of the more advanced type skills that we were trying to teach, uh, you know, not getting into any names of any of those products or anything, but along the way, uh, and it, you know, I really as a teacher, but more so as an administrator got to be a part of what technology could do um, and to support those technology advances through pilots and different things uh, that I would try to encourage and, and bring to the districts I worked in. Um, and, and it really helped, I think, teacher development too. And now the, uh, the big question, how did you hear about Batavia and uh. Uh, what'd you have to do to get there? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> I was working in a local school district and, you know, you know how sometimes in your life it becomes clear that, you know, maybe you, you might be in a better position to be the boss, you know? Um, so yeah. I guess yeah, I've I was, thought about that many times. Right? <laughs> so I was in a position where I just really was loving the work I was doing. I was very committed to children and their families and our staff. Uh, was really engaged in professional development, bringing technology advances, new reading programs. Um, and it just seemed like I had a different thought around some of those things 
um, compared to the, the, the leadership um, that I was, you know, the supervision I was receiving and not to say anything negative about, um, you know, anybody. It was, it was really good work we were doing, but I just felt a little differently about some things. So I thought, well, you know, there comes a time in your life that maybe it's time to start looking elsewhere. So um, as, a, as a school administrator, we get lots of emails of job openings and different you know, alerts that come out. And this one came out for superintendent for the New York State School for the Blind here in Batavia. And to be honest with you, Ken, I knew nothing about this school except at the time that I started in this local district, we had a student who was attending here. And I had come to uh, this student's Committee on Special Education meeting with our school psychologist from the school. So we were invited to come, we came to the meeting and I got a tour of the school after the meeting. And the first thing I remember seeing was the pool and just how big the school was, how it seemed to have this like old quality of the brick and just the beautiful design and structure of it. And that was really the only exposure I had had. So this notification comes out about this position and I thought, you know, I think I'm gonna apply to this. And so I applied and then that led me to trying to read and find out all I could about the school. <laughs> well, um, the state education department has its systems and has its ways and many of them are not fast. Um, and so I had applied in February, 2021 and then in May, I get a call to interview and I had completely forgot <laughs> I had applied because three months had gone by. Um, so they called and I said, oh, yes, I did apply there. I would love to interview. Um, and I have to tell you that it probably felt, I felt the most assured I feel in any situation when I was asked the questions and gave my responses and knew from my heart that those were the things that I feel, you know, that I truly felt in my mission and vision as an educator. So I just feel like, you know, this is a match made in heaven, you know, me being here at the school and what it's really done to just, just rejuvenate my, my love for, for learning and for students and for teachers and education. So that's how that came about. The interview process lasted uh, several weeks. Uh, and then I was officially hired on July 8th, 2021. So a little bit of a road from February to July. <laughs> yeah. All right. Again, I will ask you the same question about Batavia that I did earlier. Um, having not had too much experience with children who were, uh, who were blind, what, what challenges did you, what surprises did you run into that you didn't expect to? Sure. Um, I think the biggest challenge for me, Kenny, was that I just felt so inept and that I was going to do or say something wrong or be too overbearing and not, you know, be able to approach children, uh, understanding what their levels of independence were or what their levels of need were. And I, you know, and, and having been a special education uh, teacher and educator for so long, I know that my role as a special education person is to really be able to go into any situation and help any child because you're kind of globally trained, you know. Uh, but I had really never worked with, with students who were visually impaired. I think I can count on one hand. So I was just afraid that I was gonna fumble and just say and do stupid things. <laughs> and what I just found was just how 
how just accommodating the children were to me. You know, I'm the adult and, you know, to say, nope, that's okay. Or no, you can show me this way or no, can I just take your elbow and you can leave, you know, so just, I felt I learned a lot from the children and certainly from the staff, you know, as to how uh, to approach cer certain situations, because, you know, as a, as a teacher of students with disabilities, I never wanted to take away someone else's independence. You know, I felt my goal was always to build that, but I wasn't quite sure uh, what that would mean. I, I, I thought I had to have some working knowledge of Braille and found it. No, you don't really, Jackie, we have people that do that, you know. Um, so I, I feel like some of the greatest surprises, I think, was just I feel the intuitiveness of some of our students. Um, I was told that as time went by, the kids would recognize my footsteps. They'd recognize what perfume I wear and they do. It's like, I walk into a room, oh, hi, Jackie. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they know it's me. You know, um, So um, we just have such a, such a loving group of students who are just so individual in their, their abilities. Uh, their wants and needs like everybody else and and that has been just such a special special um thing to encounter and to experience well, at one point <laughs> at, at one point when i was in school uh including kindergarten through 12th grade there were over 200 students um, as part of the the makeup now i understand there's about 50 or 60. yes uh, so it sounds like, well, obviously the laws changed yes. as, as far as admitting students to the school. What have you had to do to accommodate uh, students that have handicaps other than blindness? Sure. Um, well, as you indicated, the laws have changed. And with those changes, we have certainly a lot more children who are being educated within their home school districts. Um, so home school districts over a course of, you know, several years uh, have what we call, you know, have brought back, you know, students who have been in outside placements or in other placements to be able to provide services within their home school. Um, so typically what I think uh, we see here at the School of the Blind um, is, you know, students with multiple disabilities that could be, you know, uh, brain related difficulties, uh, prenatal difficulties, you know, difficulties upon birth. Um, and so for many of our students, the additional services that we provide through occupational therapy, physical therapy, uh, orientation and mobility, uh, we have art and music therapy, uh, we have social skills groups and, um, you know, so we, we really focus on the individual individualized needs of our, of our students. Um, you know, at this point, we're, we have nine classrooms, which probably sounds very small compared to when you were here, Kenny, um, but we have about half of those students uh, that are on what we would call a typical uh, diploma track and about half of those students uh, will be aging out with what we call skills credentials. So um, the other thing that's more recent, Kenny, and this just happened within the last year or two, is that there were changes in the social services laws in which the counties where students were from would pay for the residential portion of their education. So even if, you had, if we had students that lived within a closer radius to the school, um, those individual counties would pay for portions of the residential programming. 
the social service law changed two years ago and the onus of responsibility for the residential portion then was shifted to school districts. And then school districts, you know, before the county would pick up, I think like 59% of that residential cost, well then the full costs were shifted to the districts. And that was a huge, you know, economic burden that many districts did not anticipate uh, having to fund. And so my concern is that shift onto school districts might make it more challenging for students that live more local to be able to experience the residential setting that really just provides a lot for our students um, that, you know, who don't go home because they live so far away. Um, but for the kids that live close, there's some additional social um, and recreational benefits that sometimes they may be missing, you know, if they're not here. So that's just been a recent shift that we're seeing impacting our, our intake process and, and who we can accept for residential support. One of the things that they used to do when I was there was one weekend a month, we would get a Friday off. So those that, that didn't live close were able to get home rather than just for Thanksgiving and or Christmas. So it was great for me because I was a day student for a while. Mm -hmm. And even when I wasn't, I lived in Rochester. So I got to go home a lot and still yeah. come to school. Yeah. Yeah. So I think when you were here, was it a seven day residential program or was it five days? No, it was just, it was five days. It was five days. Okay. And, and, and we had, they had a summer school program. We didn't get into it, but um, uh, there were other students that, that, that did and, and learned about social skills and Braille and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. So uh, that leads me to another question. Do you have a summer school program for students outside of the, of the uh, regular kids that are there in the regular school year? Uh, currently, we do not. Um, so the students that we support during the summer are the students who qualify for um, additional education to prevent substantial regression. Uh, that's the litmus. Um, so out of our 58 uh, or so students, um, probably the majority will be attending what we call extended school year or ESY programs, but we aren't open at this point to students uh, who are not attending students to be here uh, over the summer. Now, do you have a regular school curriculum for any of the students? Uh, yes, we are. Uh, we have several uh, curriculums that we work with uh, based on um, programs that teachers uh, have aligned themselves with. We're creating a shift though in that area to better align the you know, New York State School for the Blind curriculum K-12 so that we don't have sort of different programs that teachers are using but are aligning ourselves uh, more closely to the New York State next generation standards. So uh, that's some work that we're embarking on uh, this year and into future years to align that curriculum, uh, we've started with an ELA steering committee. Uh, we're working very closely with the Genesee Valley BOCES, regional BOCES, uh, to help us prioritize our standards and then bringing forward those resources to support learning. So we're very excited about uh, kind of embarking on this, this path for better alignment of our curriculum. Now, also when I was in school, um, some of our students went to public school for a yeah. class or two. Mm -hmm. I was never that smart. I, st <laughs> <laughs> I, I stayed at Batavia 
all the time and got my education there. But do any of your students there qualify for that? Yes, um, we were not able to um, work in collaboration with uh, the Batavia City Schools these last couple of years, obviously due to the pandemic. Uh, what we are looking at um, a cohort of students that we would like to uh, participate in uh, science and social studies classes next year or the year after. We've got to do a little bit of planning uh, for the middle school and high school levels. And we have two students next year that we anticipate will be um, uh, joining the Genesee Valley BOCES uh, CTE, the Career Technical Education Program uh, for Culinary Arts. So we're kind of excited to have that relationship with BOCES to support vocational abilities. And we hope to, in the next two years, uh, get some of our students back to the local schools, um, middle school and high school for some of those other content areas. So that's, that's something I'm really looking forward to, to reestablishing here at the school. Explain a little bit more to our audience about BOCES, because one of our one of my teachers, in fact, I think you're in his old classroom. Oh, <laughs> uh, the Bill, science room. Right. Yeah. Uh, Bill Deerkop, who uh, was at the school for a long time and eventually wound up working at BOCES for a while. Okay. Um, so BOCES stands for the Board of Cooperative Extension of Learning Services or something like that. <laughs> and in our region, there's Erie County, Genesee Valley, uh, closer to Rochester, there's Monroe One and Monroe Orleans, two BOCES. And BOCES are the sort of the umbrella organizations that provide um, supports and services to component districts. So in the Genesee Valley region, those component, component districts are everything from Avon to Livonia, Leroy, Pavilion, you know, all of the smaller uh, rural districts, which I think there's about 22 or 23. Uh, we're lucky here at the School of the Blind because we are connected with BOCES in that we house one of their classrooms, which is the health services classroom here in our building. Uh, we have an audiology um, testing room in which BOCES is going to hire someone and allow that person to be housed here. And so because we have this nice sort of back and forth relationship, they give us some freebies, I guess that's fair to say. So um, <laughs> a lot of their professional development opportunities, curriculum, um, special education, they allow us to participate for free, which is great. It's just a great relationship that we have. Um, so BOCES not only support districts, but they also have their own educational programming, services that they provide, whether it's occupational therapy, speech, physical therapy, or OT, uh, that districts pay into um, those services, um, you know, a certain amount of money each year to receive those services. Um, so currently, we are working in collaboration with Genesee Valley BOCES to hire uh, an audiologist that would be a BOCES employee, but we have a state-of-the-art audiology uh, center here. So that person would be based here, but work with area districts. Uh, again, I mentioned the health services classroom. Uh, so they don't really like pay rent to us to, to be able to house their uh, personal health services program here. Um, and they're also working with us, like I said, around curriculum. So um, I've always been a big fan of the BOCES. Uh, I've worked with various BOCES, uh, depending on which uh, 
district I've been associated with, and I just find they're just such a, a, a great uh, resource to schools, you know, to support our varying needs. So that's kind of what I think BOCES does. <laughs> now, also, when I was there, one of the things that I always used to look forward to was the seniors would put on a play every year. Um, one of the best that they ever did was the Diary of Aunt Frank. Oh, wow. Uh, um, and it was fun because it was, you know, it gave them a chance to, to uh, be in front of an audience. And, and we did that same thing with the different choruses and the orchestra. And one year, a couple of years ago, the, the students did, uh, did the play of Snow White. Uh, do they do anything like that today? Um, no. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, when I, when I hear you reflect on the time that you were here, Kenny, and I talked to the different alumni, um, you know, I think that our student base is, is much different than perhaps it was um, when you were here. Um, I would think that some of the kids that have, you know, some of those skills and abilities that you reference are not likely some of the students that we're getting here now. Um, but I will say that the last probably five or six intakes that we've had um, for some of our middle school age uh, students who've recently entered, you know, do I think reflect more of those typical capabilities. So we're excited to see some of that shift that we're seeing in our intakes. But we do, we do have uh, Christmas sing-along performances that we do. Um, I think that we are opening it up to uh, the ability of our art and music therapist to bring some of those things back. Uh, it's just a little bit different because our students require, uh, many of them require a lot of one-to-one -one support that, or hand-over-hand -hand support or you know, very close supervision, which probably wasn't the same as when you were here. When I was there, and I keep reflecting back, I don't really mean to, but mm -hmm. the Lions Clubs decided that one of their goals was to make sure that every student had their own personal, if you'll pardon the expression, braille writer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do the Lions Clubs do anything for the students now here? At the oh school? my goodness, the, the Lions Clubs in this region are so committed to our students and to our programs and services. So um, as you indicated, they are very supportive of more personalized things that students need uh, this year. Uh, one of our elementary um, teachers had asked about um, our ability to purchase some math manipulatives that students could have both at home and in the dorm so they could practice, you know, some of the, the uh, learnings from the classroom. And the Lions Club stepped up, and I think it was about eight or nine kids, they brought uh, they bought these materials so that the students could bag them up and have them for home. That's just one small example. Um, they support our uh, Christmas gifts from Santa every year. Um, the local Batavia Lions Club president and his daughter uh, were here this year, and they have been for several, several years supporting Christmas here. Um, they are helping us get our greenhouse revitalized. Um, the Avon... Uh, Lions Club uh, donated supplies and uh, materials for our new sensory room or updated sensory room uh, in the school to allow students to go there uh, who need a break or need to get some type of sensory 
uh, stimulation. Uh, I've been out to the um, Akron BOCES or Akron Lions Club, excuse me, uh, and they've donated iPads, uh, clear touch um, computer screens in the classrooms. It's just been uh, this year we had a donation of uh, treadmills for our gym and for our dorm program. So it's just been pretty amazing the support that we get. And uh, I think even to the extent where we've had some families uh, and students reporting needs and empty empty cupboards at home and the Lions Club has provided um, you know, visa cards so that they can grocery shop and have food to take home. So they are just an amazing asset to our school. It's just, and they come to every event. Uh, they helped with alumni weekend, as you know, uh, this past uh, couple weeks ago. So uh, they, they are wonderful to our school and to our children. I'm sure those that are listening that went to Batavia remember the two dormitories, Park Lewis for the Goyles and uh, Hamilton Hall for the boys. Yeah. Are they, are they used for anything now? Um, Park Lewis is now um, the home for the state education department's um, data and accountability offices. Um, so that has been pretty much completely taken over by the state education department to uh, house some of their offices in this region. You know, So we have some in Western New York and then some more toward Albany. Um, unfortunately, Hamilton Hall uh, is not in use. Uh, there has just been some aging type issues. Um, there was some issues with mold and mildew in the building. So it is not uh, habitable at this point. And so we're trying to make some decisions as to what we're going to do with Hamilton Hall. And I hear there's a roller rink in the basement that I haven't been able to go over and see because I think I have to be in a hazmat outfit before they'll let me in there. But, <laughs> um, but I heard it was quite quite a quite a place in its time. It was. I used to roller skate there. They had they had different clubs um, at the school. Like they had a reading club, they had a recording club, and they had a roller skating club. And I used to skate down there. So I remember it very well. I was told the walls bank up. Is that correct? So that when you're yes. skating, yeah. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine what that was like. That must have been so fun. <laughs> yeah, it was. And there were there were mats on the walls. So if you banged into them, you wouldn't get hurt. And oh, all kinds of boy, that brings back a lot of memories. Absolutely. Now the the world that we are living in now is a lot different than it was when I was in school and when you were teaching. Sure. Um, how do you handle or have you been asked by students about the the unfortunate shootings that, that have occurred, mm -hmm. like the most recent one in Texas, the one in Buffalo, the one at Columbine, the one at Sandy Hook? Have students talked to you about this or have you talked to them? Um, I haven't, as of um, this year, had... Um, direct conversations myself with the students. Um, oftentimes there's directives that we receive from state ed or I try to align myself with what's happening in local school districts around, you know, what that communication uh, may need to look like. And, you know, the main thing that I've shared with teachers and we most recently conducted an evacuation drill and that evacuation drill uh, leads us out of the building into the basement of Park Lewis, where we have like an evacuation site. And what I, you know, explained to teachers and when I explained to students when we were in the site was that, you know, we do drills 
um, to prepare for the potential for, of something to happen, hoping that it will never happen. You know, so the way we practice is how we hope to be if in the event, you know, something dangerous or, or, or unexpected happens. And so we try to keep it as low key as we can so that, you know, students respond, they know that we are, you know, leading the way to a safer place. Uh, and then we await further instructions. And those are the, 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 the feedback we give you know, whether it's a fire drill, whether it's a lockdown, lockout, shelter in place, there's probably names of things that, you know, it's, it's hard for even most of us to remember. But we conduct our mandated drills, uh, we prepare ourselves by being calm, uh, and that we have, you know, procedures in place. Um, I find that we live in a, in a world and a society where I think children know too much. Um, so I think that our ability to keep them calm, to keep them safe, and to let them know that we're here uh, is the best way that we can kind of work through these things without bringing to their attention, you know, all of the things that get reported. You know, I can't control, you know, what happens out of the, you know, out of the purview of the school. Um, but, you know, we just try to make sure we stay informed, that we stay safe. Uh, and that we do the things around the school, like make sure doors are closed and, you know, our emergency exits are, are unblocked and all those things to make sure we're in a, a good position if, in fact, you know, something were to happen. It's hard to imagine our, it. Our school day always started at eight o'clock after we had breakfast in the dining room. And there were nine periods, each one lasting about 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. So by, by four, four thirty. Our school day as such was done. What, what kind of time period do you have now with the students? Well, we certainly do not go to 4 or 4.30. <laughs> um, our school day is about six sections between 8 to 2. And those are dedicated to the four content areas, special areas, and then obviously students have a lunch. Um, something we're building in next year, Kenny, a little bit differently um, is providing uh, this block of time uh, at the beginning and end of each day that we're calling WIN time. And WIN stands for what I need. And that's the time at the beginning and the end of the day for us to do um, consultation with related service providers, have those folks push into classrooms to provide uh, learning groups. Um, it's a time for um, teachers to collaborate with other teachers, hopefully to provide some accelerated uh, type opportunities. And so oftentimes what we hear from teachers is that we don't have the time, we don't have the time, we don't have the time. And so it's hard to improve and increase um, you know, your teaching pedagogy um, or the things we expect curricularly, social, emotionally for them to support students if we don't give them the time to build in. So this what I need time is what students need, but it's also time that we can build in for teachers to either meet with myself or one of their supervisors to continue to um, support them um, in their role as teachers in the classroom. So we still have the, you know, the reading, writing, science, social studies, you know, all the content areas. Um, and, you know, then those opportunities to build some other skills, you know, for our students during this win time. Wow, wait until two o'clock. Maybe I ought to come back. I know. <laughs> I know. We're taking it too easy on them now. <laughs> that's, that's a great that's a great time. Now, now you mentioned sensory park and music therapy. Mm -hmm. Explain what those are. 
Sure. Um, so the sensory room uh, at, at Severn Hall, which you know is our, our educational building, um, is a space with um, low light, um, tactile materials, um, you know, squishy balls and different things that students can, uh, it has a swing in it, just different ways that uh, we work with students' uh, sensory system to either give them input um, you know, to kind of either bring them down or sometimes sensory work can be to sort of elevate kids up a little bit to just get them in a better, um, you know, better space for learning. Um, sometimes it's a great space if a child is feeling agitated or just needs a break, uh, a teacher or one of our occupational therapists can take them to the sensory room uh, and they can get the input that they need to kind of regulate them a little bit more. So it's a very calming room. Uh, we have very light kind of pink and purplish lights in there. And um, it's just a great space to kind of, you know, everybody has some type of sensory need. For some of us, it may be, you know, chewing on a pen cap, you know, drinking coffee, you know, whatever it is that you need to regulate yourself. So it's just a great space to be able to do that. Um, the dorm has access to it in the evening if they want to bring kids over and just give them a little bit of a quiet space. Um, and then I think uh, I mentioned music and art therapy. Uh, we have some students who um, really build um, in their learning from the support they get through music um, or the supports they get through um, the art medium, you know, actual um, working in, in the art program. Uh, we have children that just just create just astounding pieces uh, through their work with the art therapist and then the music therapist obviously taps into that that other area for our learners that then eventually and then in collaboration with their classroom teacher supports their learning so for instance you might have a little kid who's learning you know the sequence of their numbers and so maybe they learn that better when it's put to a certain beat you know and then they can count one two three and then bring music in to, to support that learning. That's just a small example. Um, but those are some of the therapies we offer here. When I was there, one of the things that I used to love was when different organizations or schools or whatever came to perform, um, besides getting us out of classes that I didn't like, <laughs> like for example, I remember an announcer from uh, WHEC TV he had a girl's chorus and they used to come at night. And I remember uh, sometimes during the day, different orchestras or bands from the different schools would come and perform and we would listen to them. Did this, does any of that happen at the school? Um, not to my knowledge in my, my year here, but we have been opening the doors uh, for some opportunities with both the, uh, the garden club uh, locally, the Batavia Garden Club is going to be working with our kids in the greenhouse. We are very much trying to pursue um, uh, getting a therapy dog so that we can have a therapy dog here. So there's a local person that works with therapy dogs that we're scheduling to kind of come in and do that. As far as any musical type organizations or anything like that, not that I'm aware of in recent history, but there's so much that occurred prior to the pandemic that was that I'm still trying to tap into and to understand, you know, what did more of our community involvement look like, you know, before the last two years or so. But everybody that comes there now is physically there. They're not virtual and they're not doing it from home. Yep. Yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Is it with all again with all this technology, is it hard to emphasize how important Braille is for these students? Um, what uh, when we determine our, our classroom setups uh, each year, as we've just done recently for the upcoming 22-23 school year, one of the things that's really important is that we have somebody uh, skilled in the area of Braille writing and supporting Braille skills uh, for our students. So that's still a very, very big focus for us. So um, our special education assistants, uh, which are our teacher assistants, uh, we have a, a great, great number of them that are skilled uh, in Braille, and so we make sure one is assigned for each classroom. Um, our teachers of the visually impaired um, are skilled in Braille and work with students in developing their Braille skills. So, And we also have now a curriculum specialist that's working to ensure that our curriculum and those uh, resources that we use are aligned to be able to be brailled. Uh, so it's still a very, very big focus, you know, for us here for students that can learn the braille system and, and the lettering and to be able to do that through the different levels, you know, to get them, you know, a little bit more uh, independent uh, at a higher level with their braille skills. So besides the blindness that's there, what, what are other handicaps that you have to deal with? Sure. Um, so we have students that um, um, may fall under the autism, you know, um, spectrum of disorders. Uh, we have some students with multiple disabilities due to um, some medical fragility, um, students that may be on feeding tubes. Um, we have students that have seizure disorders. Um, so, you know, we do have some students with medical, you know, fragility. Uh, we have, I think, one or two students with some intellectual disabilities. So uh, we support a, a wide range of students in those areas, but we certainly support um, at least half of our population of students uh, who are graduating with Regents Diplomas. We just had two young men who graduated with Regents Diplomas yesterday and also received advanced honors uh, because of their academic performance. I just found out today that all of our students that took the living environment uh, Regents exam, and I think that was about five of them got, all everybody passed. We had a student that had a, either an 85 or an 88. So that's very exciting too. So we have this interesting dichotomy here. You know, we have students that are very needy and, and have a lot of disabling conditions that affect their learning. And then we have kids that are pretty typical in many, many ways and are now just blossoming because they get the supports they need here that sometimes are difficult to, to always you know, support in the general uh, school setting. So it's kind of unique in the sense that we have these very different students that we're able to, to support every day and, and really meet their needs. Yeah, I never got a Regents diploma either. I tell you, I wasn't. <laughs> I got a diploma, but it ain't a Regents one. But I'll tell you, Kenny, I, still, I did get one, but I do tell people when I look at my own children and how bright they are, I think to myself, I am average at best. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what I was, average. <laughs> but music was my, I mean, I loved music. Uh, that was my, my big enjoyment at school. I enjoyed playing the bass clarinet in the school orchestra. And I, oh, wow. Uh, played the accordion in our high school dance band and I was a tenor in our high school chorus and so there 
<laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I just had a conversation um, with one of our uh, educational folks, and I was saying that at some point when um, our music therapist retires, which I think may be sometime in the near future, in the next year or two, that we really should consider hiring a music instructor, you know, someone who instructs music, but not necessarily from the therapy sort of perspective. Because I think as I'm speaking with you, I think it makes me realize that there's there's been such a great great um, role that the music therapist has played and everything this individual has done to support students and their, you know, individual or group therapy needs, but there's something a little bit different under, you know, the guise of a, of a music instructor, you know, someone who can teach chorus or, or band or do those things. And this takes nothing away from our music therapist. She's phenomenal, but you are making me think about what does that role look as a instructor versus a therapist, you know? So that's getting we had we had some good ones. Yeah, yeah. We had some good ones. So uh, again, what what future goals do you see for the school and yourself? Sure. Um, well, I think I have lots of goals. I think the primary <laughs> ones are really looking at um, our curriculum. You know, ensuring that we've aligned ourselves closely. Um, to the next generation standards here in New York State, you know, as a school that primarily supports students with special education needs, we don't want to pull too far from what the expectations are uh, for our students if they were to return, you know, to their home school. Uh, we have teachers that have gone on to continue to grow and their expertise. I mean, if we're having students pass the living environment test and have students that are graduating regions with honors, then that says a lot uh, about our, our teachers' commitment to their instruction and their pedagogy. But as, as always, we can always improve. So I think that alignment K-12 is really important. Um, we are um, very much looking next year at our social emotional, social emotional learning framework um, and making sure that um, we are aligned with those state regulations around developing social emotional learning. Um, I think that a really, really big push for next year is we are in the process of hiring a transition teacher, uh, someone to really get out in the community with kids and work with teachers around vocational experiences, to help parents navigate post-secondary expectations when their uh, children graduate from here. Um, and so that transition piece is gonna be huge because that's gonna be our continued uh, connection you know, into the community uh, and into the work world. Um, I'm very happy with the work we've done in our, rec in our residential program this year. Uh, we hired a rec recreation therapist who's just done a fabulous job getting kids out and into the community, getting them active, working on wellness goals. Um, so really curriculum, um, those transition post-secondary learning uh, opportunities for our students and really continuing to build opportunities through recreation and wellness are, are some of my uh, sort of big rocks at this point. Uh, and then if there's you know opportunities like you've indicated that you had a chance to experience, 
uh, to get the community more, you know, involved with our school. Uh, since the, you know, since the big part of the pandemic has ended, I think those are, are great opportunities for us. Um, we held a uh, blood drive here just a few weeks ago and had a really great response from our staff. And we're looking to open that up to the community. So any time we can kind of get our names out there and, and uh, continue our work with community-based organizations like the Lions Club is just always a good thing for us. Uh, and our, our, our community partners. I will say, Kenny, that a big, big, big goal that I have is to really look at bringing a preschool program uh, here to the school, uh, UPK integrated program uh, that I think would be fabulous for us to have uh, littler kids coming in uh, who may have visual impairments and to support them through their preschool years uh, along with their same age peers. So that's a big goal that I have to look at uh, bringing uh, UPK here to the school. Is there a disability that you will not accept? You'll take anyone? That's a really good question because that actually came up recently. Um, you know, we, we have to be careful with any students that, you know, may be considered um, emotionally disturbed, especially if there's some um, pretty significant behavior problems because, you know, with those more outward behavior concerns uh, or even some of those inward behaviors, you know, we're not a you know, residential program for students with emotional disturbance. So we have to be very careful, um, which is unfortunate, but the reality of the type of supports that we have, you know, because we have to keep everybody safe. Um, so I would say that that's kind of you know, an area that we have to be very careful. I know that we don't accept students that have um, like breathing tubes, things like that, or students that have one-to-one -one nursing needs. Uh, but other than that, we, we, we accept a, a wide uh, range of, of uh, young ones, of individuals. Do you do anything as far as placement to help students after they leave Batavia? Um, you know, for students that age or uh, receive their diploma? want to do something else. Like when I went to college, I had to do it. I did it on my own. And so did everybody that I was there with. But with the degree of students that are there now, do you, do you have to help them uh, further their careers? Is that part of your curriculum? Um, that's not directly part of our curriculum, but we are very closely aligned with um, the New York State Commission for the Blind. So each one of our children has a, a worker associated through the commission uh, that works with them and their families uh, to help them through uh, the transition from high school and to help with college and career uh, or job readiness or um, you know, supervised employment once they leave here. Um, so the, the, the commission for the blind would be comparable to like VESID or what is now called Access VR. So that's that opportunity to get um, adult-based services once they've, they've graduated from here. Um, does, does Jackie Simpson have a family? I do have a family. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Um, I've been married to my handsome husband, Kenneth, for 20 years. Um, that's a good name. A, yeah, it's Kenneth. I know. When I first met you, I thought, <laughs> I'm going to start calling my Kenneth, Kenny, because I call him Kenneth. <laughs> um, so Kenneth and I have been together for 20 years. We have a 19-year-old daughter, Sydney, uh, and she is entering her sophomore year uh, at the University of Pittsburgh. She's in their nursing program on a full scholarship. 
And our son, Elliot, who just turned 18, just graduated from high school yesterday. So he just celebrated his high school graduation. So, and he's thinking he's going to uh, one of our local community colleges uh, in the fall. Um, I'm blessed to have both my parents living. My mother, Jane, is 87. And my dad, Sydney, is 83. He'll soon be 84. So I'm very, very lucky to have both my parents in my life still. Um, I married a man who has is one of six brothers. So I have tons of nieces and nephews that I adore and um, some great brothers and sisters-in-law. So yeah, I'm sure Thanksgiving and Christmas are great times around oh, heroes. Yeah, it's a blast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. It's really been an honor to have you. You're a great asset to the school and please keep my phone number tucked under your pillow. And, uh, you know, if there's anything I can do or anything you need and I can help you with, please don't ever hesitate to call. Well, Kenny, I definitely appreciate that. And you've actually given me lots of ideas for me to think about, you know, for our future of our school moving forward. And thank you so much for that opportunity. It's been a pleasure, Jackie. And Take that'll care. do it. For, that'll do it for this edition of City Talk. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.